Good morning, everyone. Today, uh, we are reading from 1 Samuel, chapter 30. If you look in the Bibles under your seat in front of you, it should be page 297. 1 Samuel, chapter 30. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives had also been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the six hundred men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and four hundred men. Two hundred stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the book, the brook Besor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hand of my master and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped, oh, except for 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil, or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and the herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David, and who had been left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, 
Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we've recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is, who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of Negeb, in Jadir, in Aroer, in Sifmoth, in Eshtemoah, in Rakal, in the cities of the Jeremelites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormath, in Borashan, in Athach, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. Thank you, Ben. He's in seminary, so every Hebrew word he pronounces is accurate. Let's pray. Father, we do this every week, week in and week out. Come to this building, we sit in these chairs, we open this book, we sing songs, and sometimes we forget that we have come before the living God, almighty, creator of the universe, who speaks to us, who speaks to us. How foolish we would be if we closed our ears. Help us. Desperate as we are and foolish as we may be, to listen, to receive, to have life, Help us. And I thank you for this word that you bring us to this morning. Men have planned and prepared, but it is by your hand. Help us to receive. In Christ's name, amen. We've just skipped over a bunch of chapters. So what one thing I want to do this morning is catch us up. Last week we were in chapter 24, this week we are in chapter 30. I need to set the stage for chapter 30 before we really dive into it. And when we do dive into chapter 30, there are going to be two things, two goals that I have for you. Because woven throughout chapter 30 is this final and definitive contrast between David and Saul, setting David up finally for the throne. And as we look at this contrast, we're going to be bouncing back and forth a little bit. Like I said, it's woven in, so it might seem like we're bouncing back and forth. There are going to be a lot of slides. Trust me, it's important. The other thing that we're going to see in chapter 30 is hints of Christ's kingdom emerging in David's kingdom, and it is awesome. So last week, like I said, chapter 24 Saul was hunting David. David was in the wilderness. And in this bizarre encounter, Saul goes into a cave to relieve himself. There's David and all of his men just surprised by somebody 
suddenly going to the bathroom where they're hiding. And it couldn't have been any easier for David. If he wanted to, he could have killed Saul in that moment. He could have taken the throne for himself. And all of these problems, is this running that he's been doing, it all could have been ended right then and there. But he chose not to kill Saul, but instead to spare his life. And when Saul eventually realizes what David had done, he weeps, he repents, and he leaves David, gives up the hunt, and he goes home. He knows, Saul knows, that what he's doing was wicked. Then you come to chapter 25, and it it begins with this heavy news that just lands on Israel. Samuel died. God's foremost prophet in all Israel dies. We also learn in chapter 25 that Saul had taken David's wife away. Remember, David was married to Saul's daughter, Milcah, or sorry, Michal. But when David fled from Saul, when he became a fugitive, an enemy of the state, Michal, Michal had helped him, helped him escape, stayed behind, probably to help cool down her father, to Cool down Saul, but Saul wasn't cooling down. He was furious, so he takes Michal, and he, he sells her off. He marries her to some other Israelite nobleman near the capital. And so David lost his wife. She's taken. But don't worry. After Saul's death, David will win her back. But having lost his wife, not knowing if he will ever see her again, in chapter 25, David takes two new wives, Abigail and Hinoam. So you probably see right there that David's practicing polygamy. Standard practice in those days. We saw it when we looked at at Abraham as well. And then I said, I will say again, the Bible never condones polygamy. It merely states that it happens. It kind of gives us the facts. In fact, the Bible, every time it shows us polygamy, it shows us that it only leads to divisiveness and division and jealousy and strife and these enduring problems, and it was that way with Abraham, and it will be that way with David. Polygamy is bad news, and the Bible isn't afraid to show us. So that all happens in chapter 25. Then in chapter 26, we learn that Saul's repentance, his realization of his own wickedness, was only temporary because he hunts David again. He hunts him down into the wilderness, and again, David sort of stumbles into this perfect opportunity to kill Saul. While Saul is sleeping, David could have murdered him right there and taken the throne and ended all his problems. But he doesn't. For the second time, David chooses to spare Saul's life. And again, when Saul finds out, he realizes his stupidity, and he goes home. And he leaves David. But David realizes... (laughs) Saul's and then David flees to the Philistines and he goes back to the city of Gath where he had fled once before. And this time, he becomes a trusted friend and ally of Achish, who is the, the king of Gath, the Philistine king of Gath. And Achish gives to David the city of Ziklag for he and his men and, and their, all of their families to live in Ziklag. This is their home base now, a Philistine city. From Ziklag, David launches these raids against the, the, the pagan tribes in the south and the east and the, and the southwest. 
and he's fighting against the Kenites and against the Amalekites. And it's amazing because under Philistine cover, David is defeating Israelites' enemies. And David did this, lived like this for well over a year. Then you come to chapter 28. The Philistines begin to muster, amassing their military for war in the Judean, Judean city of Aphek. And they are planning their biggest attack against Israel. Huge battle brewing. They are hungry for the fight. David and his men are with them. They have marched all the way north to Aphek, ready to join in the battle against Israel, to fight against Saul. Now in chapter 28, Saul sees this, this army gathering, and he is terrified. This is a huge force. So he's been rejected by God, as we know. He has no hope of hearing from God. He has no provision from heaven anymore. And so he plunges himself into the darkness, and he goes to the witch of Endor. He seeks counsel through her from beyond the grave, from the voice of a prophet now dead. And in this demonic, mysterious episode, Saul believes that he hears from beyond the grave, that he hears the voice of Samuel. And regardless of how bizarre that is and how dubious its origins, we need to hear what this apparition of Samuel spoke. We read this in chapter 28. This is spoken by Samuel or the ghost of Samuel or the appearance of Samuel or whatever it is. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand, Saul, and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Note the two reasons cited why God has, given, has taken the kingdom from Saul. One, Saul did not obey the voice of the Lord. We saw this back in chapter 15. Saul chose to listen to the voice of the people instead of the voice of the Lord. And what he ended up doing was taking the plunder of the Amalekites when he shouldn't have. He didn't kill the Amalekites like God had said, and that's the second reason God was rejected him. Saul did not obey. He didn't destroy the Amalekites. Those two reasons are absolutely critical as we consider chapter 30. Here, Saul, hearing these things from the witch of Endor, and it is forbidden in the law for anybody, especially the king, to practice necromancy, trying to communicate with the dead. But this information was true. Even though it wasn't new, this is old news, really, that Saul, Saul was rejected for those two reasons. And yet Saul does learn something new and foreboding at the witch of Endor's house. He and his sons will die in battle. So Saul gets no comfort from the witch of Endor, 
all he gets is more terror. And then you come to chapter 29, and it shifts back to the Philistines who are amassing for war. And the Philistine lords that are gathered there, one of which is Achish, these Philistine lords begin to look suspiciously upon David, who's in their ranks. They think that he's going to betray them while the battle is on, while they're fighting against Saul, and he'll begin attacking them. So they essentially vote David out. David cannot fight with us. So having now been rejected, David and his 600-plus men began the three-day march back home to Ziklag, more than 50 miles away. And now we finally come to the events of chapter 30. Because when David and his men complete that march, return to their home in Ziklag, they find it burned to the ground. Look at this again in verse, verse 1. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire. And taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, they killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and all the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives had also been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. It's no coincidence that the Amalekites attacked Ziklag. Remember, Ziklag was David's home base from which he would launch his raids, and among those very many raids, he attacked the Amalekites, especially the Amalekites. So likely the Amalekites heard that the Philistines were off mustering for war, that the city of Ziklag had been empty and was vulnerable. And so it's the perfect time to launch this targeted attack and exact the revenge upon David which is precisely what they do. They've burned it. They've plundered it. But it's remarkable that they haven't killed a soul. Because when David and his men show up, they don't find any bodies. They find a ghost town. And the implication to them is obvious, because they don't know what happened, right? They just show up and find this. But the implication is obvious. The only ones powerful enough to do this are the Amalekites, and because their families aren't there, they've been taken to be sold into slavery. Once that happened, once those families were sold as slaves, invading a foreign power to try to rescue their wives and their sons and their daughters was nearly impossible, especially because the people of Amalek lived on the border of Egypt and very likely would have been selling them to the Egyptians, the most powerful military force on the planet at that time. Yeah, their family was as good as gone. It's no wonder that David and his men exhaust themselves weeping as they mourn for the loss of their loved ones. Maybe it would have been better if they were killed. David's two wives, his new brides, are among the lost. Verse 6, And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God, 
David has lost as much as anyone else, right? But he's the leader. When times are hard, it is the leader who receives the bitterness of the people. Right or wrong? If the kidnapping of his wives was not enough, now the people talk about killing him. They want to drag him out into the street and stone him to death. And Ziklag is now filled with this rumor of murder because of the bitterness in their souls. David's the one who had driven them to attack the Amalekites. David could have left a reserve force behind in Ziklag while the rest went up and and not leave the city so vulnerable. This is David's fault. You know, no, no concern that the Philistines probably called for every fighting man. David is the one to blame. So you can imagine how great David's distress. I mean, you've felt stress before. Have you ever experienced anything like this? Where there's a whole group of soldiers ready to murder you. So David has been hated and hunted by Saul. He was betrayed by Israelites in previous chapters. He was just rejected by the Philistines, and now his own men speak of killing him. Flip over in your Bible to Psalm chapter 70. Psalm 70 is a psalm of David, and to me it really captures the desperation and despair that we see in 1 Samuel 30. Now, there is no direct link between 1 Samuel 30 and Psalm 70, but I think it captures the emotion. Psalm 70. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, Aha! Aha! May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. That psalm attests to the reality that no matter the depth of David's distress, he continually repeatedly, constantly sought strength from God. He knew that God was his only salvation, his only hope of deliverance. His only hope was in the Lord. And as Psalm, or sorry, as 1 Samuel 30 verse 6 says, in this time of overwhelming stress and sorrow, David strengthened him in the Lord his God. See how personal that is? The Lord his his God. And now we begin a series of four contrasts between David and Saul. This is the first contrast. In David's distress, he sought strength from the Lord. He went to the Lord. He cried out to Yahweh. In Saul's distress, as he watched the Philistines gather, he sought strength via the witch of Endor. The faithful king looks for help from above while the rejected king looks for help from below. David strengthened himself in Yahweh, his God. And then the next verses show us exactly how David does this. 
It's not abstract or bizarre. Verse 7. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Yahweh answered David, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So here we are at the second time in the narrative of David where David and God speak to one another, directly to one another. David asks two questions, but he receives three affirmatives. David asks if he should pursue. God says, pursue. David asks if he, should over, if he will overtake. God says, you will overtake. And then God adds that David will deliver that David will be victorious, that David will rescue all of their loved ones. How heartening that must have been for David to receive. How encouraging, how strengthening. But hearing the words isn't enough. It's not enough just to know the will of God. No, there must be action, and David understood this. He needed to work. So without hesitation, entirely motivated by his trust in the Lord and his relationship with the Lord, David springs into action because David lives on the word of God. You see, all he had was a promise, but he believes God. This reminds me very much of Philippians 2.13. It is the will of God both to, or sorry, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You've been promised salvation. Work. Obey. This is what David is doing. Verse 9. So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook of Besor, and where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook of Besor. So the crossing of the brook of Besor is about 15 to 25 miles away from Ziklag, depending on where exactly they cross. But now there's this large contingency of David's army that's too exhausted to continue. Remember, they marched for three days from Aphek back down to Ziklag, which was, you know, a 50-mile march. And upon their discovery in Ziklag, they weep to the point of exhaustion. I mean, those who know deep sorrow know how incredibly exhausting it can be. Now, on top of that, they've just traversed these last 20-ish miles as quickly as they can go to try to catch the Amalekites. Yeah, it's no wonder that there are men who are exhausted, on the verge of collapse. And it seems wise for David to leave 200 exhausted men behind. At this point, they're just going to slow him down. So let them grieve and let them rest. And the added benefit is they will ensure that the rear of David's column is guarded. And you know what? If God has promised the victory, then 400 men is enough. Or 300. Didn't Gideon prove that? God is with them. Who can be against them? 
And so as they continue past the brook of Bosor, leaving these 200 behind, a strange stroke of luck, no, not luck, providence, befalls David. And somewhere along the way, the scouts find this beleaguered, bedraggled man wandering in the wilderness. Verse 11, they found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink. And they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant of an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negeb of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negeb of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. <laughs> Unlike the Amalekites, who were very happy to leave this sick guy to die in the wilderness, just leave him behind, notice the abundant hospitality of David. There's food and water, but beyond that, cakes, figs, sugars, sweets, basically. Incredible hospitality that David's company shows the stranger. And they don't even know he's significant yet. Right? He's probably so exhausted. I mean, it says that his spirits needed to revive. So he's probably on the verge of unconsciousness. So David and showing this hospitality mirrors the profound hospitality of his ancestor, Abraham, who we have recently studied here at Emmanuel. This is the hospitality that's meant to mark all the covenant of people, all the covenant people of God from David's kingdom, even back from Abraham, into the kingdom of Christ. Leviticus 19:34. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. That's a hard word. But here's David doing it. This law is written upon David's heart. And it's reflected in all of his followers. And this is why the disaffected and the rejected continually make their way to David. And they join his ranks because, because David, in David they have hope. In David, they are welcome. Who do you think that foreshadows? Him who invites the weary and the heavy laden? He who will satisfy the hungry and the thirsty? He who will bring relief to the persecuted and oppressed? So we follow him while we wander in this wilderness. And we are welcomed into the family of God because of Christ the King who has given all things to bring us in. So when David truly does care for this stranger, when he is generous with hospitality, this slave eagerly abandons his old master and he gives his allegiance to David 
I have no loyalties there anymore, David. I am yours, basically. It's like so many of us, I hope, that have abandoned our old masters and given our hearts fully unto Christ to follow him, and then Christ generously gives us all, even his own life. If we can relate to anybody in 1 Samuel 30, I think it's the slave that's taken in by David. And this Egyptian, now loyal to David, is ready to lead him straight to the Amalekites to conquer the enemy. What happens next in verse 16. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped escaped, except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and all the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. God had promised that David would conquer the Amalekites. God had provided impeccable intel. And now God brings David upon the Amalekites in a ridiculously vulnerable situation. They're partying. They're drunk. They're self-indulgent. They're spread out all over the land rather than formed for battle. God provides yet again, and now it's the perfect timing for an attack. And the entire Amalekite force is defeated. Right? They are slaughtered. Minus those 200 who escape on camels. Yeah, because David's men are foot soldiers. There's no way they're going to run down camels. So they jump on the camels and they're off on their corvettes. But all the rest, David did not hesitate to kill. His enemies, the enemies of Israel, are devoted to utter destruction. Does that seem harsh? I mean, the Amalekites raided Ziklag and they didn't kill anybody. Now here's David attacking the Amalekites, killing everyone. No. Because David is doing the Lord's will. And here we see our second contrast between Saul and David. We read earlier in chapter 28, one of the two reasons God had rejected Saul was because Saul did not utterly destroy the Amalekites. He let some live. He let their king go. Saul was to be God's judgment upon the Amalekites. They were a wicked people. Here we see it reflected in their reveling reveling and their partying. And these were people who sacrificed their, their children to their false gods. Saul was supposed to dispense God's judgment. But because he did not, Saul came under God's judgment. But now David destroys the Amalekites ultimately for the evils they had perpetrated against God. And every single wife and all sons and daughters, all were recovered. Not one was lost in the enemy's camp. 
Because David acted in faith, because he was obedient and he sprung into, into action, David is the conquering rescuer. And then very intentionally, verse 20 points out that David was not afraid to plunder the Amalekites. He specifically mentions that he took their livestock, he took their cattle. That's the third contrast between David and Saul. Both David and Saul took cattle from the Amalekites. Saul was rebuked for doing it because he was supposed to devote everything to destruction. But David does it, and he reaps only blessing as a result. He uses this plunder to give gifts later. So it's as if there's this shift happening now between Saul and David. Something new is emerging. Something that wasn't there before because David isn't rebuked. He's blessed. David has conquered the Amalekites. He is vindicated now as deliverer in the eyes of his men. And this new order begins to bud right here in the killing fields of the Amalekites. And then we see this new order blossom in the following verses. Verse 21, Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook of Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him, excited to see their families. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and his children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given to us. He has preserved us and given into our hands the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so, ha- so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to the day that First Samuel was written. I think David's men appear pretty logical. It makes sense. Those who defeated the Amalekites should be rewarded with a plunder. You do the work, you get paid. Those who stayed behind, they can have their loved ones, of course. Give them their families, but they didn't earn the rest of this. This is the common sense rule that dominates humanity. Regardless of culture, regardless of time, it's the rule that dominates all of us. Those who work the hardest get rewarded the most. This is the mentality of David's men. And do you know what it calls David's men? Wicked and worthless fellows. That's a wicked and worthless mentality. It's a mentality of work, of self-righteous Entitlement. I've earned it. I get to keep it. Look at you. What do you do? The heart of God. He loves the downcasts and the dejected and the lost. 
in the world in which David lived, as in ours, this is an entirely foreign concept, more so in his day. But David is a man after God's own heart, unique, unique. And so he did not listen to the voice of his men, which is the fourth and final contrast between he and Saul. Saul listened to the people rather than God, and for this he was rejected. But David rejects the voice of his men, instead honoring and imaging God. David is imaging Yahweh here. And in so doing, David initiates a ruling that endures throughout all of Israel's generations, that regardless of station, each each person's share shall be the same. Warning. We live in a very politically charged world, and so it's going to be very easy for us to see shadows of political ideologies in what I just said. No, David's words are not first political. That would be a mistake. There are political implications, but these are not political words. David's words are first theological, and what David is doing is uniting the will of heaven with the actions of earth. That's what David's doing. Shame on you if you put a political name to it. This is a new order that is blossoming in David, hints of a new creation, and it all foreshadows the new creation that would be drawn with Israel's final, greatest, ultimate, eternal king, who is Jesus Christ, our Lord, before him, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Go to Matthew chapter 20 in your Bibles and see this, what David instituted alive in the new kingdom. Matthew chapter 20. We're looking at verses 1 through 16 in Matthew chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them to his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, Go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give to you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyards too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them for their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those who hired first, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last workers worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat? But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. 
God's heart is to give grace to the weak, giving what we could not earn for ourselves. And when, he, when we recognize our weakness, he makes us strong. When we recognize our lastness, he makes us first. What glory, what grace, the kingdom of Christ, where first shall be last and last shall be first, this is the kingdom where we live today, and that principle is meant to govern and guide our lives. And it's a principle that begins to emerge under the rule of David. Yep. So this too is prefiguring Christ. David giving gifts of plunder to those who had been plundered, giving treasures to those who had been stolen from. And David in doing this, he's already showing that he is wise and he is courageous and he is generous and he is gracious and he is hospitable. And he's an astute politician. Can you imagine a politician like this? David's God-fearing courage and his generosity, it is going to help win over the people of Israel. And he doesn't know it yet. David doesn't know it yet. But he's soon going to need to win over the people of Israel because there's a battle raging in the north at this very moment and it isn't going well for Israel. In the list of places that received gifts from David, Hebron is listed last. You see that mentioned last at the end of chapter 30? But Hebron will be listed first, the first city that will exalt David as king. Hebron, the former home of Abraham where the bones of the patriarchs rest, will be blessed under the anointed king's rule. This entire history of David, everything that we've looked at these past many weeks and the things we will see in the coming weeks, all of this about David was meant to make Israel hungry for a different kind of king, for a new kind of king, a king that would be righteous and courageous and wise. And all of this is meant to make us hungry hungry for an even greater king. And how obvious, how obvious it should be to us now that David points our eyes and our hearts entirely unto Christ, and we see it all over this passage today. The disaffected and rejected and oppressed are welcoming to the kingdom of Christ. 
Here in this kingdom, the one in which we live, your self-righteous acts earn for you nothing. But you shall receive generously because Christ is the conquering rescuer and the gracious giver. We are the poor and needy. He is our help and our deliverer, and he will not delay, which is what we read in Psalm 70. Christ our King lifts the lowly, and he strengthens the weak, and he comforts the mourning, and he encourages the faint, and he gathers the lost, and he loves the rejected, and all we must do is by faith bow our knee before this awesome King and give him our loyalty, our allegiance, and our hearts. How he loves to welcome us in when we do. He has already begun to make all things new. It's happening around us, heaven and earth, uniting in the present kingdom of Christ. And today, we are flooded with symbols of this new emerging creation as we rejoice in a baptism, one of the primary symbols of the church, that there is a new creation. And in just a few moments, we will celebrate the baptism of Spencer Farr. And I do think that this is a high point in the church's life. Praise God. He makes all things new. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word and that you speak to us through it. That your word is creative in nature, has recreative power. So let there be nothing dead or stagnant in this room today. Transform, change. If we have known you 80 years or eight days or never before. Breathe life, hope, peace, joy in our hearts, I pray. I thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus Christ, our King and our Lord. Amen.